Babble Bullshit and Beyond, a podcast hosted by me, Marco Kiris, bringing you a standards perspective of the film industry and an immigrant's perspective on America. The most fluffy, fun pop bullshit you can tune into. My kind of town, Chicago is. Today on the podcast, we have Bruce DeMont, the creator of the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago. We talked to Bruce about his illustrious career that spanned 50 years in the radio and broadcasting industry. Through his various political talk shows and tireless work involving the Broadcast Museum, Bruce maintained the history and integrity of radio. So, Bruce, you are the founder and the president of the Museum of Broadcast Communications, which began, from what I read, the development was in 1982 and didn't open until 1987. So it's been about 30 years now since it's been open. Let me ask you, how is it doing today? From what I saw, the numbers have dwindled a little, a little bit because of the Internet and people can find things online and the attendance. So they were charging a, um, what I think is a nominal fee of $12 to go into the museum versus free in the uh, previous uh, place. 12 bucks is nothing to be a part of the American uh, pop culture history of radio and TV and broadcasting. Well, the, signif- the significant thing that happened, and you touched on it, is that when we were at the Chicago Cultural Center, and again, we mm-hmm. closed in 2002, the idea of streaming media and digitization and things of that nature were relatively new concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't quite know. YouTube was, was around, but it had not really taken off, and Netflix and just the massive transformation of American media was in its infancy uh, at that particular time. So when we closed our doors at the Cultural Center, we had uh, a large, uh, we had about 85,000 hours of content. So during that period of time when we were, for a portion of the time, building our new building, we began to digitize our content. We were very early in digitizing the content. And so we were able to digitize in those you know, five to seven years about 80, about 10% of our collection. And then it became apparent that uh, because the world had changed and people were able to get content you know, online, and even the major networks uh, began to offer their own content through their own websites, hmm. that uh, you know, being able to watch an old television show was no longer unique. It was when we opened at the Chicago Cultural Center, and there were 24 screening suites. It was really the only place in town where you could come in and watch old television shows. Wow. And uh, that was unique to what we did. During this 10-year period of transformation, obviously, it became less important. And so our focus was to make that content available online through our website, museum.tv, and that is... That's the principal archival focus of the museum at the moment. But the other thing that we were able to do is that in, in being a real live museum, we had to come up with exhibits. And so, you know, NBC donated uh, the, the Meet the Press set that mm-hmm. Tim Russert used. Uh, we had the donation of the camera used in the very first presidential debate. We began to amass uh, donations of content from people, including of the estate of the late Gary Coleman, who Hmm. was from Chicago. And so we began to put together exhibits uh, as funding became available, which is sort of like a traditional museum. You go in and you read a story on the wall and you press buttons and you watch things and uh, artifacts are displayed in a way to tell stories. And uh, that was sort of the transformation of what the museum was, a 
real live museum. Hmm. Uh, but again, the real depth of the museum lies in its archives and our ability to digitize and share that online at museum.tv. I see. And and to this day, where does it stand? I mean, uh, I, I did read that the second floor is, is dedicated to the uh, radio industry. Is that correct? The second floor of the museum uh, is all the National Radio Hall of Fame gallery, and that's where 173 inductees into the Hall of Fame. You can read about them. You can, uh, you know, click uh, click a mouse on the uh, touchscreen, or touchscreen, I should say. Uh, you can hear many of the on-air performers that are inducted in the National Radio Hall of Fame. On that second floor also is the uh, Comcast NBC Universal Center, which is our presentation space hmm. where people can come in. We have our public events. Everything we do there is live-streamed. Uh, it's also a space that can be rented for uh, for private events and seminars and discussions. Our third floor is all about television, national television, and we tell the story of television by telling the stories of genre. And hmm. we've divided up into comedy and drama and music and news and game shows and uh, children's shows, and each of those genres uh, tells a particular story of the evolution of that genre. Hmm. And then we also have interactive uh, you know, digital components that really give people access to uh, the digital content, uh, available digital content from those eras. So it, it's, it's an opportunity for people who really love television, even contemporary television, to understand the origins of the medium and to understand the, or, the origin of that particular genre. A pivotal story in the history of, uh, of the museum, and it really relates to Hollywood, which I know is that's near and dear to your heart, and as well as those uh, listening uh, to this interview today. Uh, one of the pivotal times uh, in the history of the museum involved Lou Wasserman, who was the head of MCA mm -hmm. and Universal. He was arguably the most powerful person in Hollywood. Um, I wanted to meet him because I knew a little bit about the, uh, the origins of the company. MCA, which turned into Universal, mm -hmm. uh, was, was, was created, and its, its original home was in Chicago. And so a member of our board, uh, Frances Bergen, the mother of Candace Bergen, the wife hmm. of Edgar Bergen, mm -hmm. she was on our board because one of our first major artifacts that we received back in 1986 uh, was uh, one of the Charlie McCarthy's, the original Charlie McCarthy, as well as Mortimer Stern and Effie Klinker, who in the 1930s were major radio personalities. They eventually went to television, motion pictures, but he was a ventriloquist who was from Chicago. Mm -hmm. So she donated those uh, those puppets to us, major donation, before we even opened our doors. And so she then agreed to join our board of directors, and like the Bergen Foundation continues to be a major supporter of what we do. And she knew Lou Wasserman, because obviously she was part of old Hollywood, as was he. So she arranged a meeting with me and, and Lou Wasserman. And I am just I am just frightened out of my mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna go talk with the most powerful man in Hollywood. I'm practicing my elevator pitch because I'm thinking I'm probably gonna get maybe three minutes with this guy. He is only doing it as a favor to get to uh, uh, Francis Bergen. And so I'm practicing and standing in front of the mirror the night before I, I have this meeting. I go in and have the meeting. He has he has about 25% of the top floor of the uh, uh, what is now the Comcast building, uh, the tall building uh, in the sky at, at Universal Studios. Mm -hmm. So I go in there, and, and Marco, 
year or not. Obviously, I didn't know that. He had in his side uh, uh, office uh, drawer pocket, he had the, uh, the financials for the very first year that MCA created. So you know what made last, when we were a billion dollar company or whatever the case may be, he has all of his uh, you know, financial reports, just literally, he was taking them out and showing them to me. Huh. And he said, he said, you know, I did not spend a lot of my time in Chicago, but it was, it was the move and it was the city that changed my life. I was a young band schlepper from Cleveland, Ohio, when I came to Chicago, an agent. The first non-band act I ever managed was Edgar Bergen. Oh my God. And he said, and, and we used to go around the state fairs of the Midwest, I used to carry Charlie McCarthy around in a suitcase. And he then said, if you're gonna, help, if you're gonna preserve Edgar and Charlie, I wanna help you. Wow. And then he said, two other things that I will never forget. Too many people in too many people in this town think Chicago is just a city you fly over. They're wrong. And this is the pivotal thing he told me. Chicago is where the audience is. And everybody out here should understand that. So he then made a substantial donation which allowed us to build Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy exhibit at the very first museum. He then provided funding through the MCA Foundation that allowed us to take our index cards and catalog them so they could be searchable uh, in a computer. And he also provided funding that allowed us uh, to, to, to do further the beginning of sort of the digitization process. And, and when, when, uh, when the company was sold to Mashusta, which included, uh, you know, the Panasonic brand. Mm -hmm. uh, he provided additional funding, and the television studio that we had uh, at our media at our at our location on, on Michigan Avenue was all filled with Panasonic television equipment. It all went back to Lou Wasserman, and Lou Wasserman's inspiration to me kept me going many times. The darkest hours of this museum. It was the inspiration that provided me by Lou Wasserman and a similar story involving William Paley that kept me going. Wow. What a story. I mean, I'm so glad I let you say that. That's fantastic. I mean, God bless that man. You would think that there'd be more celebrities who'd be, who'd be interested in, in uh, basically doing guest appearances. We have done that from time to time, but again, it, it, is, a, it is an ongoing thing. You have to get uh, the right person with the right, you know, right inspiration. I mean, the people that come to the museum, I think, are impressed by it. So it's, it's, it's people that are coming to Chicago, whether they're passing through, passing over, or they're coming back to visit relatives, because many major players in, in TV, you know, uh, uh, you know, they came from Chicago originally, so they, they know some of these, uh, you know, they know some of the local shows that we have, uh, you know, basically on display. But it's, it's, uh, it's anything else. It's, it's word of mouth. We're not, uh, you know, the, the competition, uh, you know, insofar as broadcast museums. Everyone is aware of, you know, the Paley Media Center in New York, in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. Uh, all the major players in all the major you know, media companies sit on that board. And again, when they do an event, and they do wonderful events, it's, you know, it's a, it's a cab ride or a limousine ride away from, you know, a great event in New York or Los Angeles. It's a little bit harder when you're, uh, you know, in the central part of America and you've got to uh, you know, fly people in and do things of that nature. Hmm. That's, that's a shame. 
Um, it's it's got a great location, I must say. That's a fantastic location. <laughs> Just like that is prime real estate. I'm saying prime, prime real estate. It's probably worth a zillion dollars today. I mean, that's a fantastic well, corner it, to be well, on. It, it is worth a great deal. In fact, one of the things that, uh, that and, and maybe there is someone listening to this podcast who, uh, who picks up on this, but one of the things that, that is still available, we have, we have a fourth floor special events venue. It is, at the moment, it is probably the best place to have an event in Chicago. You can have your sit-down dinner, and again, you can have your reception on the second and third floor where you're really, you're just feeling and, and sensing and surrounded by radio and television history, and then you have your event on the fourth floor with a beautiful terrace overlooking Trump Tower and, and State Street. So it's a phenomenal location. Uh, we, we are looking for someone that would want to lend their name to that it's a three million dollar ask mm-hmm. but it, they they would have their name associated with that fourth floor uh, you know venue uh in perpetuity and and not only would there be the branding for that individual or that company uh that would last in perpetuity but again it would also allow the museum to completely erase our debt mm-hmm. and so all revenue from that fourth floor would then support the ongoing operations. I'm surprised that they haven't come forward, Bruce. Like Geffen last year donated, I believe, a hundred million dollars to the Lincoln Center and took over that uh, the wing, the uh, where they the symphonies play, and uh, and now his name bears the uh, the building at this point. Right. Well, again, there's there's uh, uh, we we know, and, and and this is part of my eternal optimism. Uh, I know there is someone out there that eventually will want to do that. I, I agree with you. I'm surprised Oprah doesn't do it. I'm surprised, you know, if, if you reach out to people like Geffen. And there are so many other people like Spielberg and Tom Hanks and so forth. And Tom Hanks is a serious player these days in terms of archives for movies and, and radio and television and promotes right. and donates a lot of money to different causes and events and to preserve American cinema and television. He'd be a great guy to uh, to hook up both. No, well, I will uh, just set up a lunch. Yeah. <laughs> You never know, actually. Uh, never Bruce, know. I've, I've met kind of everybody, and somebody else like Jerry Brookheimer, but he's a real film and reality TV kind of guy. But Tom Hanks is much more into the preservation of uh, American pop culture and its historic museums. So you basically started in 1961. The late 60s, you had your own show. You were um, beyond the Beltway, which was on for, what, 30 years? 36 years now. 36 years, and now it's syndicated across the state, from what I understand, and it would change titles to Inside Politics. Did you go to school to become a politician? Why were you so interested in politics and, and your entire broadcast was all about politics? I grew up in a very politically active family. Mm-hmm. And uh, when my father would uh, take me to school, drive me to school every day, uh, before I got out of the car, we would listen to Paul Harvey on the radio. Mm-hmm. And we would briefly discuss what Paul Harvey talked about that day. And then later on that night over dinner, we would pick up the conversation. So I became involved and interested in politics from a very, very young age. In 1976, I was doing a local a radio show on the public station, public radio station. But in 1980, uh, there was a lot of uh, action going on politically. Uh, Jimmy Carter, the incumbent president, was being challenged by Ted Kennedy. Uh, and the Republican primary was wide open between Ronald Reagan and George Bush and John Anderson. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the program director and I said, uh, her name was Carol Nolan. I said, Carol, 
I said, I would like to do a show called Inside Politics. And this, this would be with the operatives, not necessarily with candidates. It would be by, for, and about political animals. <laughs> and, and we would speak at a level where we wouldn't, you know, we would not assume uh, that uh, we, we wouldn't have to go back and explain everything we were talking about because we were going to have this discussion at a higher level. And the only people that were really going to be interested in this were really political junkies. And so the program went on the air on June 26th of 1980, and it was called Inside Politics. And within about 18 months, it became a very hot cult show. There was a huge story done on it in in the local Chicago papers, and it really took on a a cult-like following. And uh, we did that for many, many years. Uh, In 1989, uh, they convinced me that they would try to syndicate that on, in public radio. And so we began, and the, the week after we began the national show uh, was the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill uh, hmm. hearings, which you know took politics, I mean, in your face, I mean, oh, knock yeah. down, drag on politics. I mean, it was on the front page of every newspaper. Mm-hmm. We, we, we inadvertently had gone on right at the right time when everybody in the whole country was really charged up. And so uh, the program began to expand the number of affiliates in public radio. And uh, then in uh, 1992, uh, the opportunity to move the show to commercial radio, moving it to WLS, which was the ABC-owned station in Chicago, 50,000 mm-hmm. watts. I moved the show from a public show to a commercial show. We moved all of our affiliates that we had gathered in markets all over the country. We moved them from the public station to a commercial station in that same market. That's a big deal and to in do. In 1994, when the Republicans, led by Newt Gingrich, took over control of the House of Representatives, uh, it, it clearly was a revolutionary time. And at that particular point, we changed the name of the show from Inside Politics because we were no longer talking about what was inside and happening in Chicago. We were offering national uh, analysis from beyond the Beltway. And the term beyond the Beltway was used in the very first uh, program we ever did, uh, you know, back in 1989. Uh, however, uh, Beyond the Beltway, we've now, the show is, uh, has existed as Beyond the Beltway now longer than it did in its initial uh, naming of Inside Pod. It was basically the same show with just a flip of the perspective and uh, Beyond the Beltway is not only the name of the show, it is the philosophy of the show. Hmm. Because I believe that not all the wisdom in America lies along the banks of the Potomac River. That beyond the Beltway, there are people, it's real people with real passion talking in a very real way. And it's not, it's not talking points by political parties that dominate much of the Sunday morning talk show. Uh, analysis in America. So this is the antidote to that, and uh, we've been doing it for 36 years, and we're now on in 35 markets, terrestrial radio stations. We're on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, have been since for the last seven years, and it's also a live video stream at beyondthebeltway.com, and it's also a local television show in Chicago, and uh, uh, you virtually can find it anywhere. If you have a computer and you uh, type in beyondthebeltway.com, you can Watch it, listen to it, react to it every Sunday night, and also watch it if you miss it on Sunday night. 
And it's still going on all these years, Bruce. And you've won a few awards, some local awards, and from producing to, uh, from producing a couple of documentaries and TV shows as well, from what I read. It's a, it's a long career. It seems like it's almost, you know, 50 years. It, it, you know, it's interesting that you, that you mention that, Marco, because it, it dawned on me uh, that I have been on the air, uh, either public radio, commercial radio, behind the scenes, uh, behind the mic, behind the, the scenes in television, in front of the camera in television. I have been involved in that, and I'm coming up to my 50th anniversary in broadcasting. Wow. What are you going to do to celebrate that? Are you going to rent out that I top floor? I, I, I mean, frankly, I just, it just dawned on me uh, the, other, the other day. Uh, I don't know, but I, I'll, have to, I'll have to do something because it's, uh, uh, you know, when you think of, of of, of how things have evolved and, and had a reunion of the ABC7 Chicago uh, family. These are all the people that worked uh, uh, through, you know, about 65 years uh, at, at the station in Chicago. And it was really a stroll down memory lane, and, and it was during that introduction, because I once worked at that station, that it reminded me that that's, uh, that's where I used to be the front desk receptionist. and. Uh, uh, then eventually had to have to had to leave. That's that's the that's the first job I was hired and fired at in, in broadcasting. Wow! And it was 50 years ago. And uh, uh, when I chose not to do what the boss wanted me to do, I went to another place. And uh, a month later, I began producing television shows in Chicago. And, I haven't looked back since. And you've been successful now for basically 50 years, and I think you should have a 50th anniversary at the uh, <laughs> museum, truthfully. I mean, there's nothing more fitting than, and then having the company or the state throw a 50th uh, anniversary party on the fourth floor and potentially uh, get some uh, people to, to, you know, lease it out for $3 million. Well, that would be a, that would be a, that would, that would be a good 50th anniversary yeah. present. <laughs> it's actually well, not unheard of. Listen, you've done everything else, Bruce. I mean, I don't see why not. You know, it's a great campaign. It's a great way to celebrate your 50th year in in the business. You did create it. You were the CEO. You were the president of the company. You took, you know, all these years. It's it's your heart and soul and, and, and blood in your body. Um, nothing better to do that and then invite the people like Geffens and Tom Hanks and everybody else and explain to them in some kind of a nice email as to why this is all happening and maybe to spark somebody's pocketbook a little bit. Well, that, that, that certainly is a possibility. Again, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a little difficult to necessarily tell that story about yourself, but again, yes. as, as, as I think most of the journalists uh, that have covered the story, certainly in the Chicagoland area, know that it is, you know, we went through this tremendous, uh, you know, uh, almost baton death march for 10 years while we were waiting for the state money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the museum is now open. We will be, will be open four years coming, uh, this coming uh, June. So again, it's uh, we we have a lot of we have a lot in our rearview mirror, but I think the the great challenge here, Marco, also is as as we look towards the future and, and transition and, and finding the person that you know whether it is the financial person or whether it is the visionary that wants to lead this institution uh, for the next thirty years, because uh, again, it, it is it is that time when when uh, you know the torch should uh, soon be passed mm-hmm. uh, to people that can take basically what I've built and, and expand it. Uh, the core elements are all there, and it's a matter of uh, you know finding someone with the passion and uh, the connections, and uh, to not only from a programming standpoint, but obviously a funding standpoint too, and, and with uh, 
a degree of vision that figures how do you uh, how do you grow the museum in the next thirty years? Well, I think it's a great idea, uh, and and you keep coming up with creative. Uh, ways of reinventing different venues for the museum, and I think it's endless. And I think young people should really, if they're in Chicago, it's it's a must, along with Millennium Park and you know all the other wonderful sites. Um, it's it just seems to be that that would be a, a to go to place. No, and we're we're very interested in reaching out to to uh, to a younger uh, group of people who who really want to uh, uh, they want to participate in helping uh, you know chart the course for an institution. Uh, that literally, it, it, it's about evolution now. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly, when you talk about, you know, radio or television, first of all, they don't even, it's now everything is audio and video now. They don't even use, you know, the, the original terms. But again, it is something, and again, even, even, even with radio, I mean, radio is reinventing itself with podcasts. I mean, mm-hmm. more and more people are doing podcasts. The, the, the number of people listening to podcasts is, is, is expanded. So, you know, those people that were saying that, that radio is dead, well, radio is not dead. Audio is not dead. And uh, this certainly is an example of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's creative people knowing what to do. And the bottom line is they are creating content mm-hmm. that people are interested in. And, 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 and in the mission of the museum, it talks about content. And content is king, and content, the creation of content, it evolves over the years. The delivery system becomes different, but again, it is the content. What is being said, who is saying it, and are they saying it in a creative way, uh, whether it be audio or video, that's that's the essence of creativity uh, in, in, uh, in modern communications. I agree. I think that there are so many film students, thousands of film students across the states that would be really interested in museum. I'm going to bank that less than 10% of them even know that this place exists in Chicago, unless you're from Chicago. You know, NYU students, Columbia University students, USC, UCLA students. I'm sure very few even know that these museums exist because yep. they're so yep. interesting. The thing is that everybody, uh, everybody wants to be remembered. I mean, mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, no matter even if you're in your 30s, you, you may not be thinking about being remembered when you're in your 30s, but you can you can definitely, you can go to the bank on the fact that at some point in your life, uh, when you hit around 50, uh, you are going to, you are going to be concerned about what people say about you when you're long gone, and museums are, are, are one way in which uh, uh, people can, uh, can, can be remembered uh, in a significant way, and that's, that's what museums do. I agree with you. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I'm so proud of you that you actually went through this entire process and and had your vision uh, realized through the trials and tribulations of, you know, corporate America and the state and the city and the, you know, the, the big companies and the networks. I mean, it's you've done years and years and years well, of also, work. Also, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that the story that I shared about Lou Wasserman, mm-hmm. a, a similar story which happened uh, within uh, 18 months of that story. In fact, uh, the story I'm about to tell actually happened first, and that is when the chairman of the museum, uh, the late Arthur C. Nielsen of the Nielsen Company, <laughs> and I went to see William Paley at his office at BlackRock CBS in New York. We wanted to go to see Mr. Paley because he was the founder of the Museum of Broadcasting at that time. That became the Museum of Television and Radio, and it is now the, the Paley Media Center. Mm-hmm. But we went to see him to tell the story of uh, what we were doing in Chicago, and he was very gracious. He welcomed us to his personal office. We had a little lunch uh, right in the uh, in his office area, the three of us. 
And we began to talk, and I asked him, you know, how did the Museum of Broadcasting get started? And he told me that story, and he said, uh, he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased to learn what you're doing because broadcasting has reached a point where it really requires the study of more than one institution. And uh, the, the, the importance to study television, it took, it took motion pictures over 100 years to get a level of, of credibility in academia. He said, you are helping television raise to, rise to that level. And so he was very supportive. And here I'm sitting, literally I'm sitting between, i got William Paley on my left, i got Art Nielsen on my right, these, these two giants, and I said, the other thing is, I want to remind people, Mr. Paley, that so many people that created American television uh, came from Chicago. They came from the heartland. Mm-hmm. And I said, I certainly know that you, know, you were born in Chicago. And then he went on to talk about how he loved Chicago, and when, he, when his father took him out of the University of Chicago lab school, he was worried that he was going to have to you know, go east of Pennsylvania, but he said, I ended up liking it, but he said, but I've always loved Chicago. And so I said, well, where did you grow up? And he said, I grew up in Rogers Park. I said, well, Art's from, Art, 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 Art's from Rogers Park. So the two of them, who are similar <laughs> in age, they start talking about life in Rogers Park, Illinois. Hmm. And after a couple of minutes, I said, well, but, but, but then he said, but then I moved from Rogers Park. I said, where did you go? He said, well, we moved, we moved closer to the lake. I said, where did you go to high school? And he said, Carl Schurz High School. And I said, Mr. Paley, that's where I went. <laughs> William Paley and myself both graduated from Carl Schurz High School. We are wow. both in the Carl Schurz High School Hall of Fame. Our pictures are right next to each other. Oh, my so God. The broadcast museums in the United States were founded by graduates of the same school. Oh, my God. I'm, I've got and tingles. i forget when we're leaving. He put, he, we're walking out the door. He has his right arm. Uh, over my shoulder. He literally is patting me on the back. He said, congratulations. He says, you're doing God's work. Good luck to you. And the last one, I want to share this with you. Please. The museum was about a year and a half old. Uh It was December. We had sent out our year-end solicitation letters. We were having a board meeting uh, the next day, and uh, we were in very dire straits. We were going to have to begin to cut... Uh, employees because we were running out of money. We were open, but it was the first real financial crisis that the museum had. And so I had a habit of after work every day, I was not working full time for the museum. I would go down to the museum and I would open these letters late at night and see whether there was any money in the in the in the return envelopes. <laughs> and week after or, or, or I was opening all these things and it was one rejection after another or there was $5 in this one. And then I literally get, I'll never forget it, it was late at night, uh, the board meeting is the next day, I open one last letter, and it says, Dear Mr. Dumont, I have heard of your dream and your work in Chicago from our mutual friend, Paul Harvey. Hmm. And I wanted you to know that I've instructed my foundation to send along a check for $100,000 oh my God. to support your efforts. And it was signed by Walter Annenberg, who at that time was one of the wealthiest men in the world, the man who created TV Guide, 
Wow. And, and you've achieved it, Bruce, and you will be known that you have created this uh, museum in Chicago. I think it's fantastic that you've done what you've done. So uh, with that, uh, Bruce, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and, uh, and letting us know how everything kind of evolved with the Museum of Broadcast uh, Communications. I thank you very much. I've enjoyed it greatly, Marco. This concludes our podcast with Bruce DeMont, the founder and president of the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next time. This is Marco Kiris signing off. Yeah.